I'm Kim Marie Khan, Marketing Associate for Harper Academic, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academic's podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers about their books. Harper Academic calling Margot Lee Shetterly. Margot is the author of Hidden Figures, which is the remarkable true story of the black female mathematicians at NASA who helped pave the way for both gender and racial equality in the workplace during the Jim Crow era. These human computers, as they were called, were among the brightest minds of their generation, and without them, our country's accomplishments in the space race would not have been possible. Hidden Figures has also been adapted to a movie, which will be released this Christmas. We had the opportunity to sit down and chat with Margo at the National Orientation Directors Association annual conference in Indianapolis. Hidden Figures is currently available in hardcover, and the movie tie-in paperback will be available in December. All right, so we are here today with Margot Lee Shetterly, author of Hidden Figures. Margot, thank you so much for joining us in Indianapolis. Thank you for having me here. I'm really excited to be here. Fantastic. Um, so the first thing we wanted to ask you, um, so this story in Hidden Figures is obviously so fascinating. Why tell this story now? Obviously, there are a lot of practical reasons as to you know you doing the research now, but why do you think this story resonates so much in this current moment? Uh, you know, it's so funny because um, over the course of doing the research for Hidden Figures, um, you know, I, I'd be like elbows up to, in documents in some box, you know, that I found in the National Archives. And, you know, I come across a document that, that was talking about, okay, how do we recruit more black engineers? You know, how do we get more women who are topping out at sort of mid-level grades in their careers to move into executive level grades. So um, in a way, this, this, it's the perfect moment to have this conversation, but partially because we've still been having, you know, we've been having this conversation and this discussion about inclusion and diversity in STEM fields for the better part of, of you know, half a century. Um, so I think part of the reason why the story is resonating is because the themes endure and we're still looking for answers. Um, and I think another reason is the larger themes of what does it mean to be an American? Um, how do we manage our identities? What's the responsibility of each individual to the group and to their community and to their society? Um, all of those topics are top of mind as well, and that is something that is that goes to the core of this story, Hidden Figures. Absolutely. And I guess one way to follow up on that, that really great answer is, in an interview you gave with The Wrap, you said that you hope that this will be seen as an American story told by Americans. Why was that so important for you to make it an inclusive story as opposed to a story about black women or a black American story? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think it's all of those things, you know, and so often we sideline history if it's if if it's seen as, you know, black history or women's history or immigrants history, all of these things, we kind of say, oh, well, those are sort of 
secondary of secondary interest or you know when in fact this is all part of american history you know we all contributed to this this american experiment um and so it's really important for me to show those grand stories um but through the eyes of these protagonists that we haven't seen before you know frankly like as a black woman seeing these these women these black women as protagonists in their careers is something that's it's really exciting to me to see that. Um, and, and I really think it's something that transcends because, you know, one of the most interesting moments for me from college when I was a freshman, I remember seeing Maya Angelou. She came to the University of Virginia to speak. And, um, you know, obviously she's just tremendous in so many ways. But, you know, one of the things that I most remember from that is that, you know, she stood in front of this room of all of us students with this voice that's like rich honey, you know, I mean, her voice is amazing. And she said, Shakespeare belongs to me. And William Faulkner was writing for me, you know. And so she was claiming all of these writers that have, you know, the canon, you know what I mean? And a time when we're trying to include as many voices, there's, you know, so much discussion about how to, what relationship we should have to those you know, people who are writing at a time when it was very exclusionary, you know? Dead white men. Dead dead white men, you know? But she was like, listen, they are writing for me. Shakespeare is writing for me. Faulkner is writing for me. All of these people are writing for me. They are mine. I claim them. And for me, it was this moment of kind of liberation, you know, because I love the Herodotus history and the Thucydides history and the Edward Gibbon History, you know, these great sweeping epics, Lawrence of Arabia, I, Claudius, you know, all that stuff. I love it, you know. Um, and so I want that history, you know. I want the people who look like me to be the protagonists in those grand stories. That's what Hidden Figures is. But I am writing for the white kid in Iowa. I am writing for... Um, you know, the immigrant who came from another country looking for, you know, a better life in this country. You know, I am, I feel like I am writing, I am writing from the perspective of a black woman, but I am writing for everyone, you know, because I feel like those themes are transcendent. Mm, Absolutely. Following off um, on that a little bit, these, you know, amazing protagonists. um, One thing we were talking about earlier was how these women, there was so much pressure on them, not only because the job was so high pressure, but because you know, they're some of the first women, some of the first black women mm-hmm. to be doing this. So you know, the stakes are so much higher for them because if they mess up, you know, that could easily be seen as, oh, well, we shouldn't have let women in this field. And I just think that's so fascinating that they had this pressure and rose to it. Could you talk a little more about that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's something that, um, you know, that I think a lot of people feel today, like I've certainly been in circumstances where I feel that sort of extra burden, you know, of being seen not just as an individual, but as the representative of a group, however fair or not fair that may be. Um, And it was so much more intense when these women were there because they were the first, you know, they were this new kind of person in the workplace you know both when the first white women came and they really started hiring professional women in great numbers and then when the black women came um, and it was like the first black professionals who were also women you know in this workplace so um, they they took that 
that idea and that knowledge that, that they would be seen um, in some cases first as members of a group and only later as individuals. They took it very seriously. Um, and uh, they, you know, they really did every, wielded every, every tool that they had, you know, or wore everything they had like armor so that they could basically uh, sort of deflect any of these negative stereotypes. Um, you know, they were really sensitive to the need to be excellent, um, not just for themselves, but for the people they worked with, for the people um, that came behind them, for the people maybe that the, um, the people at work ran into in some other place. They might have a different idea of what a black person or a woman could do or be because they'd had this interaction with them. So, um, you know, I think it's a tremendous pressure, particularly for the earlier women, but it was something, you know, there, there was this, you know, this idea of like being black, you had to be twice as good to get half as far, you know, um, and I think that is something that they lived with, that they understood, and that they took seriously. Um, so yeah, I, a tremendous amount of pressure, um, and a tremendous sense of responsibility that they were paving the way for other people like them. Absolutely. When you had your head in the box going through all of those archival records, you also had sort of the knowledge that, you know, your your father worked at Langley. People in your neighborhood growing up worked at Langley. For you, this was normal. Of course, black Americans worked at Langley. Of course, they worked for NASA. Of course, they were scientists and, and engineers. What was that moment like? going through those archival records, going through those boxes that, well, hang on, this actually, this actually isn't normal. This is actually a story that has the potential to be this great, big, sweeping story. So what was that moment like? Right. Well, I mean, I guess I sort of, even as I grew up, I mean, I think when you grow up, you kind of accept whatever your circumstances are sure. as normal, right? It's your childhood, your life, your dad who works at NASA, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you do... You know, you do have a sense that maybe this isn't like this sort of absolute norm, but it was enough of a norm to say, well, I know that there are black people who are scientists. Like there was no uh, dissonance for me between the word black or, you know, being black and being a scientist. Um, but I, I think one of the things that was most um, that really started to hit me was just how close my life, right, which was very different from my parents, from these women, um, just how close it was in terms of time to, you know, very, very different circumstances, mm -hmm. you know, so, um, so not, and not just with the women and the fact that there were these black women working at NASA, what became NASA, um, but also the situation in the schools, you know, so really the secondary narrative of this book is about integration in Virginia public schools. And, um, you know, I went to integrated schools, went to school with white kids and, you know, Asian kids and, you know, whatever, right? It was just like a, a, a diverse group of, of people, economically mixed, um, that I went to school with. And I think it was, you know, an amazing way to grow up. Um, but that really wasn't so long after Virginia really integrated its public schools. Um, so, you know, so I think for me, it was, you know, 
really, I was the starting point of the story and my sense of what was normal and, um, and my experience. But, you know, it, it really was the process of sort of excavating this history was, you know, there were, there were many times along the way when I was kind of astonished, even as I knew the facts of the story and kind of knew, you know, you know about, you know about segregation, you see the evidence of it, the, the residuals of it, but to sort of like really excavate this entire story and all of the coincidences between these women's lives and these, um, these moments like Brown versus the Board of Education, um, it, it was kind of astonishing. There were, there were many moments of just being kind of gobsmacked at, at what was happening there in my hometown. So um, we've got the film coming up soon. Very exciting. Um, I'm sure that must have been so exciting for you being involved with that to an extent. Um, so two questions that kind of go together on that. Um, first of all, what was that experience like having your book adapted to a film, especially so soon? Mm -hmm. um, and what do you think can be gained from the book that you don't get from the film? And what do you think you get from the film that you maybe don't get from the book? What, how do they complement each other? So uh, a lot of people ask me, okay, the book is out and the movie is coming out. Like they're essentially coming out at the same time. Mm -hmm. How is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you it's a very unusual circumstance, um, but everything about hidden figures from the very beginning has been kind of unusual and charmed. And I, I think that's the power of the stories of these women. Um, so after HarperCollins, um, you know, very exciting said that um, they would publish this book. Uh, my literary agent, Mackenzie Brady Watson, got the proposal into the hands of a woman named Donna Gelati, who is the producer on Hidden Figures. Um, Donna is, you know, one of a few powerful women in Hollywood. She loves stories about strong female protagonists, you know, and I think like, like any woman in that circumstance, she saw so many parallels between her struggles and, you know, although they were very different, but very much saw and appreciated what these women had gone through. And I think saw these women as people who had, you know, offered their shoulders so that women like her could stand on them, you know, expanding what's possible for women. So um, anyway, so Donna called up and um, just like in the movies, she said, we're going to make a movie of this <laughs> book. <laughs> and... Um, you know, I, I had, I mean, this was, this is my first book. So I had no experience with making the book, much less having a book made or a film made of this book. Um, so it, it was really, it was fascinating. I mean, I think it was really interesting for me to shape the story in one medium and to see it shaped based on my story, but really a different creative process um, as it has to be with film, you know, and seeing it come to fruition as a film at the same time. Um, so I, I really, I think it's really exciting because I think these, these two different parts of the story are completely complementary. Um, you know, the book obviously is, it's nonfiction. It is completely documented. There are tons of notes in the back for all the history research nerds who want to like <laughs> roll up their hand, their sleeves and, and uh, kind of like see all of the, the structure behind the narrative. Um, you know, and I hope that uh, there are, you know, a lot of people who respond to that, like the history nerds, the, the space nerds, the, um, 
you know, Virginia. I mean, there's so many different parts of the story that I think people can hold on to. And I think those people will really find that in the book. Um, You know, the movie, I mean, the movie is this big, shiny, like, amazing sort of representation, larger than life representation of the story. You know, um, whereas the book spans time period from 1943 to 1969, um, the movie is really focused on 1962 and this pivotal moment when Katherine Johnson, you know, calculates the numbers, checks the numbers for John Glenn's orbital flight, right? This this amazing moment that tipped the balance in the favor of the United States in the space race. Um, so, you know, I hope that those people who see the movie and, you know, people, there's so many people who go to see movies, like movies draw in more people. Unfortunately, you know, I love books so much, but movies are just so big and so broad and so sweeping. So many people, I hope, will go and see this movie. Um, and I hope that those people, you know, who maybe thought that, well, they don't like history or you know, they, they were never interested in science or it never occurred to them that civil rights would be relevant to them. You know, all of those people will find something in that movie and they'll say, you know what? I wonder what happened, really happened, like, and how did they get there the same way I did? And they'll turn to the book, you know, and sort of hopefully, you know, lose themselves in the details of the story and of these women and of these engineers and of my hometown and, you know, airplanes and spacecraft and all the stuff that, like, I fell in love with over the course of writing this story. I think the the movie, you know, with its big sweeping power, um, I hope it serves as a big funnel to, like, really channel people to embrace the details of this history. In a New York Times article that was published last week, an interview with Octavia Spencer, who of course is one of the stars of the movie, she said that she thought at first that Hidden Figures was fiction. She didn't realize that she was reading about a nonfiction story. But then she said, since making Hidden Figures, I don't have a problem saying to a room full of male executives, I need a female writer or director, or I need a black voice or a Latin voice. I do not feel bad about that. So... In a way, you have also contributed to helping women help themselves to help other women with this book and this story. How does that make you feel? No pressure, right? I mean, like, Octavius, but, like, I, I read that article last week uh, sitting at my desk, and I just thought that that, if I were you, that would have to be, like, one of the most incredible things ever. <laughs> like, I, I don't know, I'd probably like print it out and like run around with it and then wallpaper wall with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing is, um, this, this, this story and these women, you know, it, it really is powerful and it's really transformative. And I think the thing about it is a lot of it has to do with imagination and what we think is possible, you know, and sending... When when President Kennedy said, you know, before this decade is out, we're going to put a man on the moon, an American on the moon, um, the, the people at NASA were like, you know, we haven't even we haven't even finished Project Mercury, and you're talking about sending someone to the moon. Uh, we don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to figure it out. 
You know what I mean? Like we are going to imagine, we are just going to start with the belief that this is possible and we're going to work backwards. You know, I think that is so powerful. This idea that if you, if you first are able to imagine something, then you know what? You can plot the trajectory to get there. That's, that's literally what these women did in their jobs. And I think that's what they did in their lives. And I think that's the lesson for the rest of us. And so um, that it's thrilling to me that all of a sudden, because this group of black women, you know, who were part of a larger group of black and white women who were working as professional mathematicians um, in the Jim Crow South, you know, in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, um, because that actually happened, you know, like we don't even have to imagine it. We just had to look and see that it was there. Um, that because that happened, the people today will say, well, geez, you know, if those women did that during that time, then, you know, I am going to assert myself and to say, well, you know, this is how I want to see it. This is my vision for my movie or my life or my job. And, and you know, if Katherine Johnson um, had the guts to insist constantly that she needed to be let into the editorial meetings because they were her numbers anyway, um, back then... Well, you know what? Maybe I have the guts to ask for what I want now. And so I, that it is, it is so, it feels really good. It feels good. But the thing is, it is totally, um, it has everything to do with these women and their everyday courage, you know. And I, I find their stories, you know, I can't get enough of it. I find, I find their stories inspirational every single day. And I think there's something for all of us, regardless of our background. Um, in, in that kind of everyday courage, um, which in, in some ways is harder than, you know, the, the kind of, you know, courage that takes to jump off, you know, base jump or, you know, there are these things <laughs> that like, or even get in a spaceship, you know yeah. what I mean? Like getting, that takes a lot of guts, right? To put yourself in the hands of people and trust your lives to somebody who says, okay, you're going to get on top of a big candle and we're going to light it and we're going to shoot you into space. You know, that takes courage. This is a different kind of courage, you know, it's, and it, you have to do it every single day. Um, and that's what those women did. And I think that's their gift to us. That's very powerful. Uh, so I think we have time for one more question. So since this podcast, um, Harper Academic Calling, is mainly for professors and administrators, um, we want to ask you, who was your favorite teacher? Who was my favorite teacher? Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, I have had so many good teachers, um, like amazing teachers at every level, at college and, you know, in high school, like all the way through. And even that, you know, people who weren't actually formally teachers who taught me a lot, so many. But you know what? I, I think I have to say my first grade teacher, Mrs. Gwendolyn Chisman at Captain John Smith Elementary School in Hampton, Virginia. When we walked in to school that first day, you know, in September or whatever, um, she told us, you are in first grade. This is it. You know, like, <laughs> it's sort of like, you know, the big leagues now. Yeah, right? The, exactly. Like, she was so serious. Like, she kind of like, was like, you know what? You are in first grade. The expectations of you are going to be very high. And this is it. 
you know, you will come to school, you will do your best. You know, she was she was like what everybody calls a mean teacher when mm-hmm. you're a little kid. But then you look back and you say, oh, my God, she was the best teacher. Um, and I think being being so young and have an adult speak to you in that way and set those expectations. You know, and my parents were like that as well. But having a teacher do it to say, you know what, this is it. Our expectations of you are very high. And um, I'm not going to tolerate anything less than your best. Um, that really gets you started off on the right foot in, in school. And so I was, I was very lucky and I'm very grateful to her for having done that. That's really great. Yeah, that's really a fantastic great. story. Yeah. yeah. I guess it inspired you to, you know, write this book. Uh, you know, a, a long series of like intervening events. But you know what? Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you Um, so much. It's been a lovely chat. This is great. Yeah, Mm -hmm. wonderful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.